The Beatles told us about Penny Lane and Abbey Road. They're real places you can visit in Liverpool and London. But when you put together a rock and roll vacation, don't overlook London's Denmark Street. So much happened there. You know, it's right there kind of in central London. You know, the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Donovan did their first recordings there. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Travel writer Robert Reed joins us today with tips for planning a rock and roll road trip. And over in Ireland, the welcome mat is supersized this year. They're putting on special concerts and events to attract people back to the old side. 2013 is the year to bring people back home and help boost our economy in the motherland, the country where the diaspora all began. Or maybe you prefer the quiet of a home on the range in the Great Plains. You feel the wind going across your face and over your ears. You smell the sagebrush and the grasses. You might spot a jackrabbit. And if you're in the right spot, you might see a bison. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. If the meek shall inherit the earth, then the great plains of the United States just might serve as their headquarters. Coming up in a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear from a son of the plains about the subtle beauty of the region some like to call the handkerchief of the Lord. Author Josh Garrett Davis shares his prairie home confessional with us as a tribute to wherever you might call home, especially if you've had to leave it in order to rediscover its value in your life. Ireland is calling its emigres back home this year. Those who left recently looking for economic opportunity, as well as those of us who come from people who did the same in generations past. We'll get a heartfelt look at the Irish character today and how it's reflected in its musical legacy in just a few minutes. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with a return visit from travel writer Robert Reed. His beat covers destinations in the USA for Lonely Planet. To help us put together a fun vacation theme, he joins us now to recommend seeing the top 40 sites of rock and roll at home and overseas. Robert, thanks for being with us. Great to be here, Rick. So, Robert, what a fun gig. You get to write about the the top, we always think top 40 when it comes to rock and roll, but these are top 40 sites revolving around rock and roll. How did you get this job and, and, and what was it like? Well, I, I kind of sneaked it in when no one was looking. I'm just a big rock and roll fan. And, you know, a lot of people go to historical sites and, you know, something you're familiar with and you see it in person and you have that experience and it changes your perception of it. Why not the same for rock and roll music? For sure. Now, I went through the top 40 and I had the joy because because I'm giving the interview, I can choose (laughs) what I want to talk about here. Uh, I just had the joy of picking my top 10 or 12 stops on your top 40. I just want to go through these. We're going to have our own countdown here. Number 33 on your list, Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, Summer of Love, 1967. Yes, I lived in San Francisco for five years, and you, you go to Haight-Ashbury, and it does feel a little bit like the summer of love. You, you know, there are plenty of places to get tie-dyed shirts and things like that. You know, all kinds of bands were sitting around here. Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, all kinds of things are going on. But it's one of my favorite record stores in the country is there, Amoeba Records. It's made from an old bowling alley. They okay. have tons of dollar records. If you're not a vinyl fan, <laughs> you will be. Number 29 on your list. The Day the Music Died, Mason City, Clear Lake, Iowa. Airplane crash, 1959. What happened? Well, Buddy Holly and uh, uh, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper, uh, it was their last flight. And they played at the Surf Ballroom in Mason City. And they crashed shortly afterwards in February of 59. You go to that ballroom. It's still open. And it's like a walk into that period. Uh, there's a free museum to see. There's some events. It's very much of that. And you can go out and see the markers uh, nearby in Clear Lake wow. where they died. It's such a, a poignant time in rock history. So all of us know it from the American Pie <laughs> lyrics the day. The music <laughs> died February 27 on the top 40 the berlin wall whoa talk about the ultimate metaphor for angst and division i love berlin and you know lou reed has a kind of an underrated album from 73 called berlin just about you know the angst and division really but you know the most famous berlin time is later with bowie 
and Iggy Pop that were living there and recording albums, and Bowie's Heroes itself is really kind of a, a tragic love song about the Berlin Wall. So even though a lot of people don't associate that wall just with music, it has really touched uh, music too, particularly if you think about Lou Reed and David Bowie. and. Hey, the, the wall, Pink Floyd, you know. Yeah, now Pink Floyd is referring to the wall, right? Yeah. Now, speaking of the Cold War and the Berlin Wall and, and all of that, number 23 on your list is the day the Red Elvis died. And I remember, and that's in Berlin, I remember when I was traveling around Bulgaria and Romania and Poland back in the Cold War times, there was one guy that was more famous than anybody else, and people in Eastern Europe thought he was like Elvis Presley, and he defected because he hated capitalism, he wanted to be communist. Mm -hmm. This guy's name was Dean Reed. He was a, a household word in communist Europe back before the end of the Cold War. Talk about Dean Reed. I'm impressed that you know Dean Reed. I mean, they, they say that possibly a billion people first learned about rock and roll through Dean Reed. He was living in East Germany. He was huge in South America. He was big in like in Mongolian China even. And he was the guy that was the only one allowed, you know, in the Soviet Union to play rock and roll because he was this Marxist. And he wrote these songs about the <laughs> CIA and things like that. So he defected. He was an American. He, he was from Colorado. No, he was an, that's right. He was from Colorado. So he actually he to be did big. defect, but he wasn't a big shot until he, after he defected. But his shtick was the system over there, the propaganda organs, conned everybody into thinking he was a big shot that didn't like the American system, settled in the East Germany, right? And... Uh, I remember back then my friends loved rock and roll and they were from Christian families and they weren't allowed to go to church, but once a year they could go to, to mass. It was Easter mass, but they would schedule the only rock and roll concert of the year at the same time. So technically the kids were allowed to go to church, but they had to make that Sophie's choice. And of course they would rather see somebody like Dean Reed doing that wicked capitalist rock and roll. <laughs> I travel to the east, I travel to Robert Reed's a travel writer whose gigs include covering the U.S. for Lonely Planet. We're looking right now at travel themes centered around the iconic sites of rock and roll and pop music. Robert also writes frequent blog entries on his website, readontravel.com. That's spelled R-E-I-D on travel.com. We also have a link to Robert's article called The Top 40 Sites of Rock and Roll. It's in this week's radio show details at ricksteves.com. Number 19 on your list is Hotel California in Beverly Hills. It's, it's more of a metaphor, isn't it? It is, but it's kind of patterned after the Beverly Hills Hotel, you could argue. That's the, mm -hmm. the hotel you see on the album cover. Mm. And it's basically talking, you know, Don Henley, the song author, is talking about the glam life of mm -hmm. L.A. That's the place people went, particularly in the 70s, for that. So you check in to the Beverly Hills Hotel, and I'm sure that you will be able to leave. Uh, <laughs> All right, I, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, too. Number 15 on the list is my hometown in Seattle, the Experience Music Project. Uh, this is, you know, grunge, and Jimi Hendrix uh, came from Seattle, so did Hart, so we've got a good, a good music heritage here, and we also have a guy with a lot of money, the co-founder of Microsoft, Paul Allen, who sunk a lot of money into this uh, music, well, museum or celebration. What's your take on the Experience Music Project? Well, it's one of the great attractions in terms of like a traditional museum kind of thing and going in and seeing it, you know, every rock fan should go. It's also nice to remember that rock and roll isn't just East Coast, you know, that we talked about Haight-Ashbury earlier. But, you know, the Pacific Northwest, huge part of rock and roll. And they have a focus on that. The Hendrix Room in particular is one of the highlights. Number 14 on the list is on the other side of the planet in Rishikesh, India, the Maharashi Mahesh Yogi's Ashram. Of course, the Beatles visited that in 68. What's there left to see? How's that doing from a, uh, from a <laughs> rock and roll uh, relics point of view? It didn't survive the Beatles too much. But, you know, we all see that idea of the 60s band going to a guru for mind-opening meditation. And, and it's there. But it's been abandoned for about 15 years. It's starting to get overtaken by forest. But that area is the, essentially the yoga capital of the world. And a okay. lot of people go there for meditation and things still. So you could have the modern-day experience and then go out in the forest and see where the Beatles were. Very nice. Next on the list, uh, of course, Liverpool, home of the Beatles. That's right. I mean, Liverpool is well aware that the Beatles are a big tourist draw for the city. You know, so you have you yeah. know, a remade caravan, you have Fab Four taxi mm -hmm. tours. And, but you can see that, you know, you see Penny Lane. You see Strawberry yeah. Field with the song is you know, based on. You can visit every little obscure detail of Beatle heritage in Liverpool, can't you? 
It's like going into the Yellow Submarine movie if you squint your eyes the right way. You know, you're really reliving so much of the Beatles. Number six, Abbey Road in London. Every every Beatle fan who's a tourist to London heads on out to Abbey Road. They still got the zebra crossing made famous there from the Beatles album cover. What about Abbey Road? It's a real nice area, the St. John's Wood of London, North London, Central London. The, the funny thing to do is even before you get there is go to Abbey Road's website. They have a live webcam and just sit there and watch mm. because <laughs> people go out and they, they stop traffic and they, they pose like the album cover like every minute. I mean, there's just constantly all day. It's really funny to watch. Ooh, and I suddenly see you. Ooh, did I tell you I need you every single day of my life? Number two on the site, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio. I think it's one of the great museums. I mean, I.M. Pei did it in a, you know, a pyramid like the pyramid outside of the Louvre that he designed. I mean, that is the Louvre of rock and roll. You have so many things that they can only show a portion of at any mm-hmm. time. So if you go, you've seen it a year ago, you go the next year and there's like new exhibits. My favorite one was this handwritten letter to Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones in the mid-60s that said, I'm writing on behalf of 640 kids in Fiji who all hate you. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) Really not Mick Jagger fans, apparently, in Fiji, but funny little things like that. Why, of all the places in the United States, would a great museum to rock and roll be in Cleveland? The term rock and roll started in Cleveland. You know, DJ Alan Freed started using it in 52, and basically to try to market kind of rhythm and blues music to a wide audience. That was back in 52. And they still have, like, as many live rock venues as as any other city, don't they? Just it's really really happening from a a live rock and roll point of view. Cleveland is a real surprise. It's a lot of fun, good food, and there's live music everywhere every night of the week. Okay, number one on Robert Reed's top 40 world's rock and roll sites. What's the number one rock and roll site that we could see anywhere in the world as far as you're concerned? The first person ever inducted to that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Chuck Berry. The man himself, he plays, he's from St. Louis, he plays at this kind of kitschy rock and roll club in St. Louis once a month for $35. I finally got to do this two months ago. I've always wanted to do it. You get there 30 minutes early, I'm front row center in a little club, 200 seats, and Chuck is playing with his son and his daughter, and it's great fun. He's 86 years old, and he's still playing for a little while, so go quick. (laughs) If you don't know Chuck, he is rock and roll. Number one site for rock and roll fans a living legend, literally, Chuck Berry in St. Louis, Missouri. Robert Reed, thanks so much for celebrating rock and roll and helping us spice it into our travel plans. Thanks, it's fun. Rock and roll forever. Go, go! Go, Johnny, go! Go! Go, Johnny, go! Go! Go, Johnny, go! Go! Go, Johnny, go! Go! Johnny, be good. Next, we'll get a taste of the powerful live music being played at outdoor concerts and in pubs throughout Ireland, especially this summer. Two Sons of Ireland tell us why they're extra excited about the special gathering that's happening in their homeland, and they'll demonstrate their country's passion for its traditional music. That's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm from London, and it's absolutely fabulous to be here travelling with Rick Steves. I'd love to boast to my friends that I spoke to Rick. We're all sitting with bibs round our necks and our eyes glittering. (laughs) 
I'd call this the biggest family reunion in the whole world. The people of Ireland are pulling out all the stops this year to welcome back recent emigres, as well as people whose ancestors came from Ireland. Special events this year center around a theme called The Gathering. They're hoping 2013 can be a record-setting year for visitors and serve as a good way to jumpstart the slow-moving Irish economy. Joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to give us a taste of the musical character of their homeland are Liam O'Riordan. He performs traditional Irish music at venues in County Cork in the south, and Stephen McPhillamy. He runs a youth hostel in Derry in the north and guides visitors all across the Emerald Island. Liam and Stephen, it's good to have you here. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Rick. So, Stephen, what's the, what's the story with this gathering? Well, it's a year-long government initiative to attract as many of our diaspora or our diaspora back to the country as can possibly be. I think we're aiming for 300,000 extra visitors and it's based on a successful festival that our Scottish brothers and sisters had two years ago called The Homecoming. So this is the Irish version. It's called The Gathering and 2013 is the year to bring people back home and help boost our economy in the motherland, the country where the diaspora all began. And Liam, you live down in Cork, beautiful mm-hmm. southern part of Ireland, probably more than its share of tourists go down there. Why would this be a good time to go to Cork? Well, unfortunately, the economy in our country is, is very, very bad at the moment. We need to generate some, some business. Tourism is our biggest industry, mm-hmm. so we want as many tourists to come, as well as people looking for their roots. We want the people that live here, that originally were born in Ireland, to come home to generate some business and get interested back in, in, in their country of origin. Because there's a lot of uh, respect for the heritage within Ireland. I, I just love that whole concept of mm-hmm. a Gale tech and so on, mm-hmm. where the government has uh, dedicated certain areas to be like natural yes. parks for the culture. Exactly. Tell me, Liam, uh, how would you define a Gale tech if somebody wants to really see traditional Irish culture? Well, my, my first experience with a Gale tech was uh, we used to have uh, competitions at school every year where you'd write an essay and uh, you might win a prize to go to the Gale tech which is an Irish-speaking area. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a number of Irish-speaking areas in the country. But if people go to the Gwiltuk, they'll hear, like Dingle, for example, would be a huge Gwiltuk area where the natives all speak the native language. The music is very strong. When I say the music, it's mainly jigs and reels and tunes, as I would call them, mm-hmm. which would be heard at a session. Um, that, to me, is the Gwiltuk is the original Irish Ireland. It's the original Ireland. It's and where I, you'll find the traditional life. That's where I love to go. I love to go to areas like that. Now, Liam, when somebody's going to celebrate um, Irish traditional culture, it, it really comes with music. Huge. 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 And, and, you know, one thing great about music in Ireland is it's so accessible. You don't need a ticket. You don't need to speak the language. You don't need a, a reservation. You just got to have a set of ears and walk down the street and pop That's into it. any pub that That's you hear it. music. We call them sessions. A lot of the pubs in, uh, at home, they have a session at least one night a week where musicians just gather and begin to play. No, there's, there's a certain amount of ethics involved in sessions, but if you can drink enough of Guinness or Murphy's and play your instrument properly, you'll be welcome, unless you play the boron. Sometimes everybody <laughs> and visitors and everybody, every Irish person wants to be a boron player. Now, that's the, that's that's the, the, the Irish drum, drum. With the, the bones. Goat skin drum. I play the boron myself. I wondered, the whole etiquette, because... You got these jam sessions where yes. if somebody's a good musician, they're welcome to step in. Of course. In. And I've seen it where it's just a magical kind of conviviality and respect and unspoken uh, communication and people are just together mm-hmm. and they've never performed together before. No. But occasionally you can get somebody who thinks they're better than they are. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, one of our most famous Illum Pipers that ever come out of Ireland, in my opinion, was a man called Seamus Ennis. Or illum pipes are, are unique. These are like bagpipes. They're bagpipes, except you play them on your lap. Right. And they don't blow. They're, they're, the bellows is under your arm, right. so you create so you the pump the air, pump the, pump air the air through the pipes. Mm-hmm. But one of our famous pipers, uh, Seamus Ennis, he said, there was only one way to play a boron, and that was with a penknife. <laughs> so if you can imagine... What does that mean? Cut it up. Cut it up. Oh, the first time you play it, if you use a knife, you cut up the skin and you won't be able to play it anymore. Because <laughs> tourists often ask, what's the best way to play this? Yeah. yeah. And his, attitude, his response would have been, play it with a pen knife. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful instrument when it's played properly. It's fantastic. Yeah. Liam, you play for a living, but there's also just impromptu jamming sessions. Oh, yes. Is it a busman's holiday for you? Or if you go to a pub where you're just on a free evening, do you enjoy joining in on the session? Oh, yes. That's, that's how um, my interest in music started because in, initially I, was, I played a lot of sports and I didn't have time for music. Mm-hmm. But I went to the pubs on my free night 
and sat in with some people that I might know, some people mm-hmm. I didn't know, and we just jammed for the night. When you think about all the songs there are, I mean, you must know, how many songs would you, would you guess you know? I would say about a thousand. They might not all be Irish songs. There's the famous, uh, what are the four kinds of music? There's love songs, there's immigration. Alcohol. What's a good alcohol song? Can you sing? in the give... jar, I was say. As I was going over the far-famed Kerry Mountains, met with Captain Farrell and his money he was counting. First produce my pistol, then produce my rapier. Then stand and deliver for you are a bold deceiver with your ring da ma doo da ma da Whack fall my daddy-o, whack fall my daddy-o, there's whiskey in the jar. All right. Well, that was a drinking song. How about uh, a love song? What's a, what's a good love song we might not have heard? I, I sang this next song at the grave of, of Willie McBride in Flanders Fields. He was an Irishman that died in the First World War. And it's called The Unquiet Grave. And I think this is as, a, as, as good a love song as comes by. The wind does blow to the day my love few small drops of rain Never have I had but one true love In cold clay she is laid Oh, that's nice. If you some a friend invites you to a wedding, what's uh, you kind of predict? Oh, they're going to want me to sing this. Does a traditional Irish folk musician get um, invited to a lot of weddings? I, I unfortunately, I think I, I tend to get invited to a lot of weddings, funerals, and yeah. parties. But usually they say bring your guitar, which they say bring your guitar. Yeah. So they hope but, that you'll play oh, at a wedding. What would be a, a big hit at a wedding then? At a wedding, um, probably the Sally Gardens, which I would sing unaccompanied. Can you play that uh, just, uh, just, or sing just a uh, It was a down by the Sally Gardens My love and I did meet We passed the Sally Gardens With little snow-white feet She bid me take life easy as the leaves hung on the wind. Ah, but I, being young and foolish, with heart did not agree. Nice. Nice. Unaccompanied. See, the song that Liam's just sung was a poem by William Butler Yeats. Oh, okay. So a lot of our good songs mm-hmm. are poems that have become songs. Because that's a, just a whole dimension of Irish culture yeah. is, mm-hmm. is the poetry. Absolutely. And when the two go together, like they're absolutely beautiful. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stephen McPhillamy, a tour guide friend of mine from the north of Ireland, and Liam O'Reardon. And Liam's a musician who plays in County Cork in Kinsale. Liam's website is tradrootsireland.com. Trad as in traditional music. Tradrootsireland.com. And you can see Liam and Stephen's websites in our website at the radio section of ricksteves.com. R-O-U-T-E-S. T-R-A-D-R-O-U-T-E-S. Okay, tradrootsireland.com. Now, in Ireland, there's the funeral and the wake. The wake. Right. So do they want you to bring your guitar? Are they saying to the wake or to the actual funeral? To both, actually. The, uh, okay, usually I can imagine at the wake, you'd sing something you'd sing, up-tempo. Well, well, you'd wait for the alcohol to be produced. Yeah. And you'd wait for the alcohol to be passed around, and then you, you'd start singing whatever you were asked to sing. But basically. what would you sing at the graveside? Uh, at the graveside, I've sang a number of times, I've sang The Parting Glass. Um, I'll do a different version of the parting okay. glass. The fire is out, the moon is down, the parting glass is dry and done, and I must go and leave this town before the rising of the sun. And when I'm done, with wandering, I'll sit beside the road and sing For all the songs I did not sing And for all the friends I did not meet Oh man, that is cool. There's something rich about Irish culture to be able to share this. I'm so envious. What is a, a lament? I mean, a lament is generally unaccompanied, right? 
in, in my opinion, the best laments that, that the laments that I would love to hear are usually played on Ellen pipes, ah. because they're the most haunting instrument when they play, particularly in a church or an area with, with huge acoustics. So no voice, just the pipe. Just nothing else, no other instrument. Also, there's obviously then there's the, the songs that would be laments. You, know. you could probably class that as a lament. Liam, your father was a singer also. Mm-hmm. What's the very first song you ever learned? Is there is there like trainer songs for future <laughs> Irish traditional stars? It's funny that you say that. One of the songs, the first song I ever sang in public, I was 10, and I went to school with the Christian Brothers. And for the Christmas uh, concert, I was told I was singing this next song. As it happened, it's one of my favorite songs ever. It's written by uh, Tommy Makem. Is it considered a simple song, like for children? or, or Not at all. No, okay. It's, it's a real story song. Right. The four fields in the song are the four provinces of Ireland. And mm-hmm. the one that the song is about Ulster being uh, under English rule. What did I have? Said a proud old woman. What did I have? This proud old woman did say. I had four green fields Each one was a jewel But strangers came And tried to take them from me I had fine strong sons They fought to save my jewels They fought and they died And that was my grief, said she Wow, as a ten-year-old you sang that because I had no choice, Rick. You had your dad said you're going to. No, sing the Christian brothers told oh, me Christian I was going to sing, and, and I sang. Those I can think could be enjoyed by a tourist just waltzing in, or they could be enjoyed by people who lived that, who grew up, and, and really can relate to yeah. the deep meaning and, and the hard life and all the heritage. I mean, there's so much mm-hmm. powerful meaning mm-hmm. behind these songs mm-hmm. that the the light viewer is oblivious to, and mm-hmm. it's still enjoyable. Mm-hmm. You know, as tourists, this is our challenge now because I'm enjoying this right here. It just makes me want to get a ticket for Ireland. For an island of just over 6 million people, Ireland sure delivers more than its share of great music. Giving us a taste of this year's homecoming theme in Irish tourism, we're joined by Stephen McPhillamy and Liam O'Reardon. Stephen, when you're traveling around Ireland, I remember years ago, Doolin was the sort of mecca and Ennis was really good, Mm -hmm. I think. Uh, Of course, Dingle in the West. Galway, uh, what are the what are the hot towns now for traditional or trad? Well, for trad, it's expanding so rapidly around the country. It's becoming so cool now that you're finding trad in the Midlands and you're finding it in, you know, sort of more modern industrial towns. A traveller to Ireland is going to find trad everywhere. Now, the key spots, of course, are the likes of Dingle and Galway. Doolin is still regarded as the capital of Irish music, but you could come to Kinsale on a Wednesday night, and Kinsale is not any way traditional. It's not a mecca for trad. No, but, no. but you could talk to your bed and breakfast host, and they yeah. might say, and be, oh, yeah. Liam O'Reardon's playing every exactly. you know Tuesday yeah. and Thursday yeah. down at 8 o'clock or and whatever. And there'd be five other options as well on mm-hmm. the same nights yeah. that Liam's so playing. So the, the trick then is not to go to Doolin, but is to talk to people locally and find out where can exactly. I get some good yeah. live music. The other thing that, that I'm very proud of is that the Flakiol, the music festival, is going to Derry this year. And uh, I was shocked when I went to Derry that in Pater O'Donnell's the music was so strong. But the Flakiol in Derry is going to be a big one this year. So the traditional, That's the like Republic the Olymp- of yeah. Ireland music um, is everywhere. Strong yeah. in the it's North. It's like Olympics. the Olympics yes. of Irish music's coming to Derry for the year. Now that, so. That's for 10 days in August. 10 days in August. Right. And um, Liam has taken me under his wing now and is, he has given me a guitar. He's teaching me the guitar. And my big plan is to be ready to play the guitar with him in my local pub oh, in, that's, in August. That'll yeah. be an event. Yeah. And in return for that, I'm giving him some of my marketing expertise and I'm going to make him a star ah, right. in the land of the free. <laughs> Liam, for our listeners who are dreaming about going to Ireland, what's, what's the best way, regardless of where they're traveling, that they can feel comfortable and, and really enjoy the Irish traditional folk music scene? Your choices are so huge with regards to music. But personally, if I was 
on a night off and I wanted to go hear music, I want to hear a guy who's passionate about his music. And if you don't know the story of the song or the tune, that you'd be told, you know, what the song is about and give you an insight. And I would just, I, I generally, what I do is I sit back and listen to the lyrics. Hmm. And you'll hear the funny songs, of course, you'll hear mm-hmm. the standards. Um, listen to the lyrics and get in. Get inside the song. Of course, there's your just your light, goofy songs, but mm-hmm. a lot of them are so passionate and so heartfelt. And I would imagine people who sing it are happy to explain it and give you a context. Generally, generally they are. But sometimes I just think some people, are, because it's their job, they go through the motions. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't. I yeah. don't fancy so that, many. You know? So many musicians don't mm-hmm. explain the lyrics. There's a great historical narrative in Irish songs, and if you know what the narrative is, if you have some of the harder words and phrases explained to you, like Liam does before mm-hmm. a song. That's just brilliant. And and also, some of our um, singers, they don't enunciate their words. It's not clear. When Liam sings, it's crystal clear. That's why I love bringing mm-hmm. my groups to listen to mm-hmm. Liam. So, if you know, get in contact with us. We'll put you in contact with the singers who are crystal clear. I love a song called The Bold Fenian Men. We had rebel heroes called the Fenians, F-E-N-I-A-N. And I once sang a song called The Bold Fenian Men. And at the end of it, an Australian girl said to me, why were those rebels called the bald-fingered men? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that'd be a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Stephen, Liam's a professional musician, and and he can come up with a song for just about any occasion, but but you're just uh, an enthusiast, and you can also. Uh, We've been thinking about this gathering, this whole celebration of Irish heritage, Ireland inviting back all of its sons that have scattered all over the world. Can you think of a song that we might want to close with that that just... uh, underlines this notion of the gathering. Yeah, my first song ever, I sang it when I was about six and learned it then. And ironically, it's called The City of Chicago. You might think that's nothing to do with Ireland, but it's completely to do with Ireland because it's a song about people from the mountains, the green mountains of Donegal, ending up in this urban jungle of Chicago. And a few years ago, I was at a family wedding and my five-year-old daughter, who she was five at the time, sang this and I didn't know she had learned it. And it really was just a pivotal moment for me, like a very proud moment to hear her sing it at five years of age when I was singing it at five. So the chorus of it goes like this. In the city of Chicago, as the evening shadows fall, there are people dreaming of the hills of Donegal. The power of music, traditional music in Ireland. Liam O'Reardon, Stephen McPhillamy, thank you so much. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick. You don't have to be an emigre from Ireland to experience the emotions that come with returning home. Up next, we'll hear what one young man has come to understand about himself and his native soil by returning to the Great Plains of South Dakota and Nebraska, where he was raised. We're at 877-333-7425 as we explore the world together on Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves ile birlikte seyahat edelim. That was Turkish for Less Travel with Rick Steves. In Turkish again, Rick Steves ile birlikte seyahat edelim. When I talk to people who've done a cross-country road trip, they often comment on how long it took to drive across the middle states in the United States, states like Nebraska, Kansas, and the Dakotas. The vastness of the Great Plains conceals a low-key character and a subtle beauty. That's a beauty you'll completely miss if you're in too much of a hurry. Josh Garrett Davis was raised in the region, and while he's relocated to New York and Philadelphia for his postgraduate studies, his memoir, called Ghost Dances, Proving Up on the Great Plains, serves as a tribute to the people and history who inhabit its vast, lonely spaces. It also explores how its sometimes heartbreaking history still has an impact on American life. Josh Garrett Davis, thanks for joining us today on Travel with Rick Steves. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, when we think of the Great Plains, we think of vast grasslands. And in your book, uh, you, you give them dimension. And I mean, there's even nicknames for it. The, the handkerchief of the Lord, for instance, or uh, <laughs> the uncut hair of graves. Why would somebody say the handkerchief of the Lord? That's a quote from Walt Whitman. And, well, the most common image or metaphor that people tend to use is as, as an ocean of grass. That's one that's kind of a, become almost a cliche, but it's the more you think about it, there's, you, can, you can keep going with it, and, and it actually keeps having more meaning. You can imagine yourself on the bottom of the sea, or you can imagine old homesteads as, as shipwrecks, and you can, you can kind of keep going with it. 
the handkerchief of the Lord has to do, I imagine that is with the texture of the land, that it, when you toss a handkerchief down, it's not actually flat. It's, there's this texture to it that you can really, if you really pay attention to, you can enjoy it. Now we're talking mostly the vast, the grasslands basically of North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Kansas. Is that right? Yeah, that's where I'm mostly focused. I mean, the, the plains continue down into Oklahoma and Texas and, and up into Saskatchewan and Manitoba right. and eastern Alberta, but my book mostly focuses on, on the Dakotas and Nebraska and Kansas. I like that, that notion, the uncut hair of graves. Walt Whitman really, <laughs> he knew what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, and it's, there, there is a lot of life there, and even though it may seem dead, you know, like a graveyard, I think that's one of the gifts of having grown up there is being attentive. Your senses become more attuned, I think, if you stay in a landscape that doesn't have any obvious mountains to stare at or something. And that when I came to the East Coast as a young adult, it was almost too much for me in some certain ways. Things are too, too loud or people talk too fast and different things like that. Yeah. Now you wrote in your book that as a kid, you looked at the at the grasslands just as a dead brown straw. But then you gained an appreciation of that majestic ocean of grass. Tell us about your connection to the Great Plains. Well, my connection has been severed <laughs> several times at my great-great-grandparents that homesteaded in Nebraska and some others that lived in Oklahoma. But then the families in the next generation or the following generation moved to either California or the East Coast. And then my parents one from California and one from New York State, moved back to the Plains, moved to South Dakota, which was not a very common thing to do then. So I grew up, I was born and raised there in South Dakota. In your book, Ghost Dances, Proving Up in the Great Plains, you give a good historical background. Give us a, a thumbnail sort of overview from uh, the Homestead Act and, until modern times of, of the story of the Great Plains. The Homestead Act was enacted in, during the Civil War to give everybody, anyone who applied, a 160-acre plot of land. And if you built a house and farmed it for five years, you got it free. Is that uh, so what that, proving up is? That's what proving up is, exactly. Mm. And in South Dakota, particularly, we have a pretty complicated history because all of western South Dakota was part of the Great Sioux Reservation from 1868. But then gold was discovered in the Black Hills in, I think, 1874, and the government kind of nixed the treaty. Wow. And that resulted in the wars, including the Little Bighorn, where Custer met his end. So now, were the bison sort of the same victims, just like the, the Indians? Yeah, the you know, a lot of people think of it as the bison being harvested for fur coats and things like that, but a lot of them were actually being killed so that the leather would be used as belts in factories before mm. rubber belts were invented. And the bison herds are now growing a lot. There are about a third of a million after there was a, there were fewer than 2,000 head in, in around 1900. We'll take listener calls in a moment for Josh Garrett Davis, the author of Ghost Dances, Proving Up on the Great Plains. Our number at Travel with Rick Steves is 877-333-RICK. Or you can follow up on anything you hear each week by posting your comments in the listener feedback forum. You'll find that in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Now, the situation today on the Great Plains is, are young people leaving the Plains or are they staying there? What's, what's the, the demographic trends these days? Yeah, it's been slow and steady depopulation since the 30s, really, and since the Depression. And young people continue to keep leaving or, or concentrating in the cities there. You know, the mm -hmm. big cities in, within or around the Plains are growing, but the rural areas are just emptying out. Schools are having to consolidate and kids have to commute, you know, 60 miles to school or something. And well, so the bison herds are being revitalized. Do you think the communities, the rural communities, can be revitalized in a similar way? Well, some may. Some may. The ones that can come up with new ways to exist. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's tough with agricultural communities because farms and ranches have gotten so big it's hard to have enough people, enough density to sustain a community. But places that have developed touristic things or places where there's a growing Hispanic community that's helping to revitalize certain towns. The title of your book is Ghost Dances, Proving Up on the Great Plains. What are ghost dances and what does that have to do with the Great Plains today? 
when we were just talking about the discovery of gold in, in the Black Hills and then the wars that followed that ended up in a pretty destitute defeat for the Lakota Sioux tribes in South Dakota. And in the, about 1890, there was a religious revival that actually started out in Nevada, but it caught on really big with the Lakota. And it was a sort of religion that promised that if you did this dance, the ghost dance, that the bison would return and the whites would go back to Europe or disappear in some way. And that all would be sort of restored. And throughout the book, I kind of use it as another sort of theme that there are a lot of ways that we do ghost dances in our lives, whether it's a on an individual level or like we were just talking about, about trying to revitalize a local community or try to build a main street back to where it was or to bring back the bison herds, which is actually happening in a, in a much slower way than the ghost dance prophesied. Uh, the ghost dance with Native Americans was to wish the bison would come back and the white settlers would go away. Is the ghost dance, uh, is that a constructive or a destructive thing? Well, it depends on <laughs> it depends on your interpretation um, because the whites saw it as very destructive and were very threatened and the government ended up... Well, that uh, led to the Wounded Knee Massacre, wounded, didn't it? The Wounded Knee Massacre, and so that was... Uh, so the Sioux are dancing, uh, hoping the bison will come and the white people will go, and the white people decide, well, let's go in and massacre 250 Sioux. Yeah, they they worried that it would it would turn violent. It wouldn't. Right. I don't think they believed that in the truth of the prophecy, but they believed that it would turn violent. At the beginning of your book, you wrote, I left the Great Plains as soon as I could but could not truly leave the Great Plains. Its culture or its mythology stayed with me. Talk a bit about that. I think there, there's something about the sensitivity to the landscape and the enchantment. Whenever I go back, I just can breathe in a, a different way. You know, there's a, just the smell of the air. And But then I also became, once I left, much more interested in the history and the the myth of the plains in the west and i started reading more books about it and watching movies and and exploring these things and um it was a sort of way to reconstruct my home without being there myself i'm rick steves this is travel with rick steves we're speaking with josh garrett davis and josh's book is ghost dances proving up on the great plains our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Barbara's on the line in Mill Valley, California. Hi, it's been fun listening to Josh. I feel much the same way. I was raised in western Nebraska and then moved to California, and when I go back, I just feel like I can stretch. Mm. It's really quite wonderful. So mm. I wanted to tell you about the Sandhill Cranes. Um, mm. Yeah, each spring, the Sandhill Cranes from the south, Arizona, Texas, that whole area, 500,000 of them funnel into a 75-mile stretch of the Platte River in Nebraska. So if you imagine an hourglass, um, this is the neck of the hourglass for the migration. It's the largest concentration in the world. Half a million cranes coming at the same time? Yeah, they come over a period of a month. Okay. And they stay about a month. Whoa. Um, mm-hmm. And they feed, they eat, they dance, they do courtship dances. These are big birds, too. They're like four feet tall with uh, six-foot wingspans. It's incredible. So in some, yeah, to, to it see is. That. Now, you see that in, in Nebraska? In Nebraska, in a 75-mile stretch, there's a town called Kearney. They pronounce it Kearney in Nebraska. And mm-hmm. that, that would be kind of a center of it. The Audubon Society has a big festival there and places that you can watch them. I've read that there are as many as 12,000 per half mile. So you could go to Nebraska if you wanted to in March to see the Sandhill yep. Cranes. And yes. Barbara, it sounds like you've been there. What else would you do in Nebraska that would be fun in, in a, a different <laughs> different dimension of Nebraska? Right. Uh, people wouldn't probably think of wineries in Nebraska, but I've discovered that, much to my surprise, that they seem to be popping up all over the place. I wouldn't think um, that. Are they good wineries? They tend to be what they call fruit-forward wines, which would be what we think of often as German wines. Huh. I mean, it's, you know, it's a cold winter. But they're winning awards. Uh, some of them had bed and breakfast. Fine, and, fine uh, Nebraska wine. See that? Fine Nebraska wine. It doesn't, it's kind of an interesting <laughs> thought, isn't it? Yeah. Give me a fine and Nebraskan I, wine as I watch half a million Sandhill cranes uh, yeah, exactly. coming through the uh, bottleneck there. There is a, a winery that um, is an award-winning winery in that area. 
Great. Uh, called Max Winery, I think. Max Winery. All right, Barbara, yeah. thanks, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Okay. And Steve's on the line in Albany, Oregon. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, like most people, when I was a kid, my family would take us on a, on a family vacation, and you know, our goal was really to get across Kansas and Nebraska as fast as possible to get to <laughs> something more interesting. <laughs> but, you know, as an adult, we, we did the same thing. We took our kids... And eventually we decided that, you know, maybe there's some interesting things here. And it's true, you know, if you slow down, uh, there's a lot of interesting sites in Nebraska and Kansas. Not too far from Kearney, where your last guest mentioned, there's uh, North Platte. And right there, there's uh, Buffalo Bill at a ranch, which is uh, pretty interesting to see. In Kansas, we actually spent some time camping in Kansas once uh, near Dodge, and there was these wonderful fields we drove through of uh, sunflowers. Hmm. In fact, I think Kansas is called the Sunflower State. And, and oh, first, sunflower butter there. You know, if you spend a little time looking at and exploring, you can find quite a few things. Now, they have Carhenge down in uh, Nebraska, right? Where's yeah, that? that's a little northwest of where the Sandhill Cranes are. It's in a little town called Alliance. Alliance. Josh, tell us about uh, Carhenge. Well, Carhenge is a pretty exact replica of Stonehenge, oriented the same way toward the the sun and everything, and made of, I would say, 1970s-era <laughs> um, American cars, uh, painted gray. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonder to behold. A celestial calendar mm-hmm. for druids and car aficionados. <laughs> this is a, a Carhenge. There's other, uh, what do you call these? In your book, you talk about purple cows. Talk about that. I I only recently learned this term purple cows as these sort of roadside attractions. And I I think Steve's right that you need to slow down and um, take the two lane roads. And, you know, in Kansas, they have the world's biggest ball of twine. Kansas has lots. It's got the Barbed Wire Museum in La Crosse. Barbed Wire Museum. Now, is that just Um, about uh, the end of the cowboy era or something? Or or what's the barbed wire? Yeah, and all the different varieties. I think before barbed wire was standardized, there were an astounding variety of of different types of points and that would keep uh, cows together. Uh, Not too far from there is uh, that world's biggest ball of twine, which I think there may be a dispute. There may be a couple of world's biggest balls of twine. Steve, thanks for your call. I think we're going to go roll some twine here and get in the Guinness Book of Records. (laughs) Have fun. (laughs) Okay, thanks, Steve. Mm -hmm. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Josh Garrett Davis. We're talking about his book, Ghost Dances, Proving Up on the Great Plains. Josh, for me, going to the Great Plains is is part of just gaining an empathy or an appreciation for the struggle of the early pioneers. Where can you go to actually get a sense of that, to to see the wagon ruts or, or understand what their challenges were? It's amazing that, that those wagon ruts still exist 150 or more years later. And at Scott's Bluff National Monument out in western Nebraska, they have uh, some of the wagon ruts that are there, and that was a, one of the sort of markers so that people would kind of long to get to after just going across. Because we think, you know, if you're driving across Nebraska now, you, some people think even on the interstate going 80 miles an hour that it takes a long time. But imagine on a... Mm. Uh, in a covered wagon when it took days and days and days and just to imagine getting to that landmark that you were almost to Colorado you were you were getting close to the mountains you can kind of sense that relief and and try to imagine that in those mm-hmm. the, those impressions that are still there in the ground and with all of the tumult and all of the, the struggles and and the history there when you think about native americans and you think about bison and you think about pioneers What's what's your favorite historical site where you'd get a sense of that? What's most compelling for you? Well, just north of of Scotts Bluff, actually, there's a very sort of undervisited national monument. It's called the Agate Fossil Beds, and so it includes some agates and geological things, but it also has fossils, and it also has a collection of Sioux artifacts that a rancher from near there, I think, collected, and. The thing about this monument is that, that it's way out there, and you just can hear the wind whooshing in your ears, and you might see a thunderstorm just kind of appearing in the west and just coming toward you furiously in this dark gray storm, or, you know, that that it's just really, really far off of the beaten path, off of the interstate. I think those types of sites where you can 
you could look on the map and you see somewhere that's as far from as far from a town as can be. That's I, I would aim for there. So you stand out there. The wind's blowing. The weather's overhead. You got the big sky. What do you see? What do you What do you feel? What do you smell? You feel the wind going across your face and over your ears. You smell the sagebrush and the grasses. You might spot a jackrabbit, and if you're in the right spot, you might see a bison. But most of all, you're going to notice the sky and how magnificently enormous it is. Proving up on the Great Plains. Josh Garrett Davis, thanks so much for being with us. And next time I drive across Kansas or South Dakota or Nebraska, I'll give it a little better look, thanks to your book. All right. Go thanks stances. a lot. Take okay. the two-lane roads. Take the two-lane roads. All right. <laughs> Wisdom. Thank you very much. Thank you. You got the big drum in the distance The blackbirds in the sky That's the sound that you hear When the buffalo cries The law the ghost dance The the ghost dance We shall live again. We shall live again. We shall live again. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan Wolner. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York and to WRTI Philadelphia for studio help today. And for website help to Kate Mulhern Graham and Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, including audio from the show that you can download to your smartphone or MP3 player and web links to our guests. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.